0: Today is February 21st, 2019, and my guest is author and economist Dan Hammermesh. He is the distinguished scholar at Barnard College and network director for IZA, the Institute for the Study of Labor. His latest book, which is the subject of today's episode, is Spending Time. Dan, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Your book opens with a... Paradox uh, of, of human existence, and I want you to start by explaining this paradox, which is, in theory, we just get a fixed amount of time in our life. Uh, we get 24 hours in a day, uh, other than the days that we switch, as you point out, from daylight savings time or away from it. Uh, we get the same number of days per week, the same number of weeks per month, per year, and we live longer, actually, than than our ancestors did, and yet— Time feels like it's scarcer. We seem busier. Uh, What's going on there?
1: Well, the reason is very simple. Yeah, we're living longer, but compared to 50, 60 years ago in the U.S. or other rich countries, life expectancy only gone up by about 15 percent, where the income that we have, most of which we want to spend, has gone up even after inflation. It's more than tripled. So we have a lot more money and only a little bit more time in which to spend it. I think that's the main reason why we feel more rushed.
0: And explain that in a little more detail. We have more money. That's nice. That's pleasant. We have a richer standard of living. And in theory, uh, one of the things we do with that money, not in theory, one of the things we do with that money is we sometimes buy more leisure and, and relaxation. Uh, why don't we, why don't we buy less stress? Why do we feel that time is scarcer when it is actually not really any scarcer at all?
1: Well, it's all a matter of relative scarcity. I mean, compared to the dollars we have, time is very scarce. Same thing is true comparing rich people to poor people at the same point in time. Both of them have a 24 hours a day, but the rich folks have an awful lot more money, and it takes time to spend money. You can't just contract out everything and pay lots of money and get the same satisfaction. You can't sleep. You can't pay somebody to sleep for you. You can't pay somebody to eat for you. You can't pay somebody to go to the theater for you or to read Proust for you, which is my favorite example. So all these things take time, and the more money you have, the more things you want to do with the money, and it takes time to do them.
0: As a labor economist, uh, and I used to be one on paper at least, I guess I'm still one (laughs) in some some, uh, theoretical realm. Uh, as a labor economist, we often use the hourly wage rate as a measure of the value of time. And the, the narrow reason for that is that, in theory, we could work an extra hour. We could consult or do other things with that time uh, to work. And therefore, taking leisure or foregoing the opportunity to work. And so leisure is is very expensive. And yet, of course, for many of us, we don't have – Opportunities for an hour of consulting here or there. We pretty much have a fixed salary at the end of the year, and yet somehow our higher incomes are doing what you're talking about. I just I'm trying to go a little deeper into it because in theory, and I keep saying in theory, I'm going to stop saying in theory. But <laughs> one in, in, through using economic reasoning, uh, that time is it's not any scarcer; it's just a
1: little more precious. It's exactly right. It is more precious. Uh, For example, take an extra hour of sleeping, I do. In most cases, I can't get a job for that extra hour and make some more money, but I could do something else. So even if I make no money at all, let's say I don't even work ever, the more family income I have, the scarcer is the time that I have. I can use my time to do more different things. Give you an example of this. I've now done a paper, brand new paper, not published not really included in the book, talked about a bit, where we look at three different countries, looking at people who don't work at all and have not worked recently. In all three of them, the people whose family income is higher, not because of them, but because of their partners or because of the government giving them money. In all three countries, those people, those adults whose family income is higher use their time differently from those who have low incomes. In particular, they sleep less and they watch a lot less television than people who don't work but have much less family income. So even without any earning possibility at all, how much you have in your pocket affects how you spend your time. Time is scarce even for non-earners. So are you
0: arguing that if I have lots of money, I can Go to the theater. I can go to a movie and go to a baseball game. I can sit home and watch TV. And having more money makes watching TV more expensive because I'm giving
1: up the opera. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. That's what I'm getting. I think that's. that's exactly what the point is, okay? If I have no money, I have very little choice because I can't go to the opera because opera takes the same amount of time as a two-hour TV show, but it costs $125 at least compared to about a buck $1.50. Uh, without any money, I'm going to make the choice. It takes a little money and a lot of time. With a lot of money. Assuming my tastes are the same as yours, I'm going to use my money to spend that extra hour or two going to the Metropolitan Opera to see something I like rather than watching so-called reality TV. I used to make this argument to explain why uh,
0: books are shorter, movies are shorter, doubleheaders are rarer. Um, In fact, they disappeared in baseball except after a a rainout. Double features don't exist (laughs) <laughs> and 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 that those all those things used to be common because people were happy to spend 4 or 5 hours at a baseball park 4 or 5 hours at a uh movie theater but now that third fourth and fifth hour at the baseball game and at the movie theater isn't quite as uh appealing as it used to be and i think what what we're saying here is that's because we have other things we can use our money for but of course, it's a little hard to understand that because we could use our money for the baseball game as a extra to pay for the doubleheader or the sometimes or for the extra movie
1: theater, right? But do you think that's a correct analysis? I think that's exactly right. What you're doing is sort of looking over time what's been happening. Uh, you know, what I was talking about was more a rich person or a poor person at the same point of time, but the phenomena are identical. It's exactly the same thing. It's a changing relative scarcity of dollars or money. And time. And time has gotten more expensive and it is more expensive for higher income and also higher wage people. So this next point's outside the scope of the book, but it's, it's relevant given what we're
0: talking about, which is I was talking to a friend the other day I hadn't seen it in a little bit and I asked her how she was doing, and she said she said, Well, I want to say I'm really busy, but I'm trying to stop saying that. <laughs> uh, and, and I find I was intrigued by that comment because I find myself In casual conversation when asked, how am I doing? Oh, so busy. And of course, I am busy, sort of, kind of. uh, But we use that phrase often to convey a, I think, a moral superiority. And it kind of ties into what we're talking about. It means I have really high value of time because I'm really high wage. I'm an
1: important guy. I mean, it's exactly right. I mean, saying that you're busy has become almost a status symbol in this country and other rich countries, a little bit less so in other rich countries. They behave differently from us. America is really unusual in certain ways in how we spend our time. It is an
0: interesting thing. It could go the other way, right? You'd think it would be a status symbol to say, I got nothing to do. I'm living like a king. Uh, Of course, kings are some kings were really busy, and some kings loafed around and get everybody to take care of stuff for them. So I guess
1: that goes both ways too. Now, I think it does. I think the real issue, though, is that there's been a change. It used to be being part of the idle rich was a, was a status symbol. Even though the idle rich were very busy, I mean, going to Ascot to watch the horses exactly. or going to salons, they were busy, but they would never say they were busy. <laughs> and now since doing things like going to Ascot or salons is not quite acceptable anymore – saying you're busy with all kinds of things. A, it's a status symbol, but B, it's also a way of keeping people off your back. Say, don't bother me because I'm too darn busy to deal with you. I have a a
0: Russian friend. I've told the story before, I think, but uh, you haven't heard it, Dan. I have a Russian friend. I would ask him how he's doing, and he would say, fine, like all Americans. And there is a (laughs) certain uh, cheerfulness uh, Americans are supposed to convey uh, that's not common in, say, the former soviet union where he had grown up uh in which case when you asked how are you doing he would shrug and make a face or sigh and bemoan his fate but in america you're supposed to say you're fine and because you're not really answering the question of how you're doing it's just a conversational gambit um but the new thing is busy and i'm i just i'm making a personal campaign here i'm going to try to say uh i'm going back to fine i don't i think the busy <laughs> thing is uh there's something uh i don't know Uh, I don't know, pretentious about it. So I'm going to try to stop saying it.
1: I recommend being partly retired as I now am, because (laughs) I honestly say I'm not real busy. I mean, I no longer say I'm busy. I never really did very much. But now I say I'm not busy at all. You know, George Stigler used to allegedly, I never saw it, but
0: uh, George Stigler, Stigler, the uh, great economist from the University of Chicago, used to have a boat that he called the Treatise, and so when people asked him what he was doing, he could say he was working on the treatise. Now, I don't know if that's a true story. I don't know if any of that's true. I suspect it's all true.
1: Uh, but I, I, It sounds like Stigler, whom I knew very slightly when I was an undergrad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it sounds very much like him. Well, so let's turn more to the
0: results of the book. The book is a uh, analysis of of how people spend their time based on uh, time diaries that people uh, fill out. So explain what those are, talk about some of their limitations and the differences between what we have access to in
1: the United States versus uh, other countries. Sure. A time diary, and they've been going on now a little over 100 years, the first ones were done in Philadelphia in the 1917 or 16. Uh, The U.S. in 2003 started doing these on a continuing basis. So every month, about 1,000 people randomly selected from all over the U.S. keep a diary. They're asked to do this and fill something out the next morning when they wake up describing every activity they undertook starting at four o'clock the previous day. So I would put down, if I were filling one out this morning, uh, I would put down that at four o'clock yesterday morning, I was sleeping. Mm. I would then put down at 6.45, woke up, washed my face. 7.15, sat down to eat, etc., etc., etc. Every time I switched activities, the government which collects these would then hire people to code them into a large number of defined categories. In fact, the U.S. uses over 400. Other countries use fewer. That's many too many. I mean, you can't do anything with that. So what I've done and what other people have done, pretty much the same, is to collect these to aggregate them into six major categories of how we spend our time. Working for pay, what I'll call home production. These are things you do around the house that you can't, that you could pay somebody to do for you, Sleep, it's obvious, other personal activities, washing up, showering, uh, TV watching, and all other leisure activities. And one can make these categorizations for any country you have. So I've done this for at least the U.S., U.K., Canada, U.S., U.K., Germany, and France, and one can do it for many others. Other countries have similar data. The U.S. is now unique. It's the only one with an ongoing continuous set of time diaries every month, every year. Some of the
0: weaknesses are obvious. Uh, It's retrospective by definition. It's flawed. It's volunteered, and it's also hard to keep track of multitasking, which is a common American experience. So you might be watching TV while you eat lunch,
1: and you're also answering emails. Well, the question is this way. Look, of course multitasking is important, and several studies – German data, Australian data, do ask you to list simultaneous activities. The question is, if I'm multitasking and I have to list one activity, I'm going to list the one that is most important, most salient in my mind. So if, for example, my wife is cooking dinner and has on MSNBC all the time, which she does, I bet you if she did a diary, she'd put down cooking dinner and she would not list MSNBC. So, of course, you're right. Multitasking is important. But recall? Look, most of our data on unemployment and how much we work come from asking questions, how many hours did you work last week? This is where we get our data on hours of work in the U.S. And that's much more subject to recall problems than asking you what hours of the day you were working yesterday on a diary basis. So I think these are much more usable Terms of indicating what we do than most of the data that people in economics have used for the last fifty or sixty years.
0: It's not that big a selling point, Dan, on this program in particular. But I take the point; it's an excellent <laughs> one. Uh, and of course, you know, you did mention age. And these surveys, they of course are going to ask a bunch of demographic questions: uh, gender, age, uh, various other questions. Uh, age. Is famously uh, not evenly distributed in these kinds of surveys, at least in my experience. There's a lot of people who are 29, 39, uh, and and they don't seem to rotate the odometer over. I don't, and I'm not. You know, I'm making a joke out of it, but it's true. Obviously, people are somewhat um, dishonest when reporting age, income, and other things. But time uses you'd think is is pretty straightforward.
1: I don't think there's any reason for people to lie about this. They yep. may have errors of recollection. Correct. Of course they do. Every survey has errors of recollection. But lying about how you spend the time, I've thought about this a lot. I don't think that's a serious issue. Because remember, it's totally confidential. Nobody else is going to see this. You're never identified. The book is filled with lots of interesting uh, tidbits and trends
0: and analyses. And the parts I like the best, there's some great factoids, and there's also <laughs> – you speculate and and expand on some of the findings to, that where you bring in a lot of nice applied economics. We'll be talking about some of those. Uh, so I want to pick out some of the the uh, factual differences among uh, th- th- that show up in the in the data. So, for example, uh, one of the things that fascinated me is that educated parents uh, that is parents with relatively high levels of education are spending more time with their teens at home in the United States than in Canada. Explain what's going on there.
1: Not only that, they're spending more time than they used to in the United States. That's not my own paper. That's a paper by Valerie Ramey and Gary Ramey at UC San Diego. Their argument is, I mean, the fact is correct. Their argument is in the U.S., the way to get ahead is to get into a fancy university, in other words, be a tiger mom with a tiger or for a tiger cub child, as it were. And in Canada, there's much less competition. The schools are much more homogeneous than they are in the U.S. Between McGill and U Toronto, there may not be much of a difference. Between the University of Texas at Austin and uh, – A lesser university. We don't need to name them, Thank you very much. No (laughs) need to name them. Thank you very much. I have all kinds I can pick out. But, uh, yeah, there's a huge difference, and it pays to have parents work you, get you exposed to all kinds of things to get you into a fancy school that will help you get ahead. So it's really a function, these other authors argue, of the nature of higher education. It's heterogeneity in the U.S. compared to elsewhere. So some of this is tutoring,
0: some of it is advice, some of it is dragging them around to various activities that show up on the resume. Uh, you, you, I think you implied that it actually is worthwhile to go to a fancy school. Uh, Brian Kaplan and others might previously contact us might disagree and suggest that it's really just the people who go there. What actually is is transformative. Uh, it's either it's, sometimes it's just signaling, uh, and other times it's uh, it could be selection bias that people who tend to go or already have certain levels of skills. But certainly, most people think that it's
1: important to go to a good school or a so-called it, good school. Even if it is, even if it is signaling, still okay, important. It yeah. still pays to do it, and therefore parents are going to do it. For example, when I was applying to college in nineteen sixty sixty one, I never thought of having extracurricular things on my high school resume. I don't think we thought about it very much. Nobody cared very much. But I look at my grandchildren applying for stuff. They're trying to accumulate things like crazy and hope to stand out in that regard. I think it's been a big change in the U.S. in the last 50 years in this regard.
0: Yeah, well, I'm 10 years uh, younger than you. I was uh, roughly, I was applying in 72. And I don't, I had, I don't even think, I can't imagine I mentioned any. I had a couple, you know, of extracurricular activities. I, they, nobody paid any attention to them, and the idea of tutoring or huh. studying for the SAT exam would be was ludicrous, <laughs> right? We got up, we tried to get a decent night's sleep. And we showed up with a pen with a bunch of pen, number two pencils, um, but obviously, what's happened there is that our generation, uh, broadly defined, the baby boomers, uh, we're a large cohort going through the. Uh, passing through time, and so our children and grandchildren are now numerous, and there's only a fixed number of spots at the best schools. So that competition is much fiercer than when you and I were applying to school.
1: It is. You wonder, however, why we have to have this comp- competition on the base of non-academic things, tutoring other children, doing this or that volunteer Activity. I don't know. This is the way it is. I'm not going to change it, but it's a strange way to be spending time and for kids to have to be spending time. Well, you could also ask the question of why
0: when I was at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, this would be about 15, 20 years ago. There was a special committee, and it was devoted to an aspect of student life that the university thought was important called education. There was actually a special committee – focusing on education. It mean, really made me laugh at the time or cry. Uh, but clearly, college in America today is a wide variety of things. It's not just a place where people go to learn. It's a lifestyle experience. It's a lot like a resort at the best, uh, fanciest colleges, at least. And uh, we're paying for, as parents, uh, if we choose to, we're paying for lots of things that are not related to hum- what we call human capital and economics, the acquisition of knowledge.
1: No, they aren't, but they're related to other things that might help the kids in the labor market. And more important, you got to remember that the top schools – while they're very selective, are competing for students, not just in terms of what they offer in the classroom, but in terms of all kinds of the extras they might be offering. My favorite example is right next to the office I used to hold here on campus. They built a very nice 25-meter swimming pool with lounge chairs and artificial palm trees for the kids to loll under. I, I think that really helps attract students. But your previous point, which I also find somewhat uh, puzzling,
0: as to why you want, quote, well-rounded – why why extracurriculars are so important. Why – you know, one answer, by the way, of course, is that – it goes back to our earlier conversation. We'll bring it full circle – is that the student who's doing 30 extracurricular things, working on the student paper, doing mock trial, doing model UN, uh, starting on the varsity soccer team, and still getting good grades. Wow. This is a pretty talented kid. So I think – Part of that is to show the ability to uh, to be a manically uh, busy, uh, ambitious person, which maybe is not what we want at our best universities, but that's what we get.
1: No, that's not a bad argument. In fact, I think it is part of that. Although the response is, "Look, couldn't they channel that energy to do something more creative in the educational context rather than doing all these extracurriculars?" To yeah. me, as a, as an old fuddy duddy <laughs> yeah. professor, I'd prefer that, but that ain't the world is. Yeah, no, that's, that's right.
0: Now we had Alison Wolf on the program uh, a while ago, uh, talking about uh, the uh, role of women and, and uh, differences between men and women. And one of the things she said in there, I want you to react to, is the role of uh, labor-saving devices. And you talk about this in passing in your book. The, the obviously, uh, washing machines, dishwashers, and other appliances have, on the surface, made home life easier. For better or for worse, mainly for women who were doing those tasks historically. They were doing the food prep, uh, often hauling the water, uh, not just uh, boiling it, uh, sometimes chopping the wood that fired the wood stove. So life has changed an immense amount in the United States for women. And one of the, um, but what she said was the real thing that changed women's lives was not those things, but pizza and what she meant by that what she meant by that was the ability to acquire decent tasting food at a relatively low price and of course as women would become more uh involved in
1: in the labor market uh that's that's especially appealing i think that's a good argument but it's only part of the story look even if you never bring in frozen pizza not having to heat up water not having to I don't know if you remember when you were a kid what kind of washing machine had. We had a semi-automatic washer. It had a little ringer, and you had to hand-ring the stuff out before you hung it on the line. Very time-consuming microwave i mean we heat stuff in the microwave that saves time for the person who does most of the cooking so yes of course she'd write prepackaged, decent foods helped a lot but there's so much else going on and it has resulted in a huge time saving evidence is very clear on this for americans especially for american women who had done most of this dirty work beforehand i think her claim was that even though they had these labor-saving devices
0: they still spent more time in the home than doing home production than the men. It just was of a different kind. Uh, but the, the food prep was really the key change. I think that's that's my memory.
1: I think she's right, but in fact, yes, women still are doing more at home than men. They're doing more work at home. They're less likely to work for pay in the labor market, not work as many hours. But men have increased ever so slightly the amount of work they do at home, while women have decreased quite substantially the amount that they do. And you have this not just in the U.S., but all other rich countries to more or less the same extent. It was striking in your book that when you sum up uh, work time (laughs) –
0: Plus home production time, women work a little bit more, but not, it's a very small difference. That is dramatically uh, well, the the mix has obviously changed. You said, but the, it's quite they're quite similar. And I don't know if those are correctly defined in the survey
1: results, but uh, I was struck by that that they were relatively close. It's about an hour difference each week, maybe at most an hour difference in the U.S. Some other countries like the Netherlands and Norway or Sweden, they're almost identical. Uh, I think it's a fascinating result. I call it ISO work, I-S-O hyphen work. They're about the same in total. Uh, this doesn't mean they're doing the same things. But if you think of home production, walking the dog, cluing the car, doing the dishes, shopping as carpool. work. Carpool. Carpool. All, that's child care, I would argue. All those together, they're work to me. They're not something you would choose to do if you had a huge amounts of money, most of them anyway. And the same thing for paid work. So I think making this addition, getting total work and finding they're pretty similar, is just an absolutely striking result. And it holds up in most rich countries, much less so in poorer countries. In poorer countries, no question, women are doing more work in total than men. Yeah, I
0: use that extra hour, by the way, to keep up on the New England Patriots, which is a full-time year-round job. I wish I had more than an extra hour. <laughs> My wife doesn't keep up at all. She's a shirker. Uh, she's you know, doing food prep and and childcare stuff, and I'm keeping up with the Patriots. Like t- That's a precious hour to me.
1: I uh, understand. I hate to tell you, though, <laughs> sir, I would classify your Patriot keeping up as either TV watching or leisure. Oh, it is. I think it, oh, okay. you're right. As long as, okay, no. your wife's working more than you are in total. No, that's what I'm saying. She's got – She's working
0: in total – that extra hour that you mentioned, it's the average difference. And so in my case, I'm taking that leisure that's available to me, and she knows nothing about Rob Gronkowski's thigh injury or uh, whether Brady's going to get an extension. I'm up on that. I'm I'm all over it, and that's because I'm shirking and not sharing. It's not quite ISO work. It's close, but I've got that extra
1: hour on her. Yeah, but on the other hand, you're probably working more for pay than she is. At least I hope so. That's a tough question, no? actually. Okay. That actually is a tough
0: question. I want to. I would actually let's talk about that. Actually, two things um, with respect to working for pay. My wife's a high school teacher and administrator. Uh, uh, she she works a lot at night, uh, grading papers, uh, answering emails from colleagues. That she her day is extremely full, uh, which is another. <laughs> Where I keep up with the Patriots, by the way, is that I take leisure on what you could call on the job. I work from home, so it's tricky. But in her case, uh, she works a decent amount of night. I work at night, too, all the time. I'm reading books for – I was reading your book last night, right? I'm, I'm not – I don't go home at 5 o'clock. I don't turn off my computer at 5 o'clock. Sometimes I like to. As listeners know, I keep the Jewish Sabbath, which means that for 25 hours I turn off everything. But on an average weeknight, I'm working at night, and yet in your data – you find uh, a lot of people who don't work at night at all. And I feel mm. like it, in certain parts of the American economy, work is really 24-7, or in my case,
1: 24-6. It's even worse than you say. I mean, think about my job as a professor. What is work? I run for exercise. I'm a big, albeit very slow, long-distance runner. I get some of my best ideas while I'm running. And is that work time? If you were asking me to do a diary, I'd say no, it's running time. It's very hard in a lot of increasing number of activities and occupations to say what work is. Your wife's work is much more well-defined, although it does certainly take at strange times of the day. That's another big difference in the U.S. and other countries, by the way. We do an awful lot more of our work at night than people in any other rich countries. We are the champion of nighttime and weekend work. I would suggest you
0: know, that you and I and many many others are probably the largest proportion of of people in human history uh, are doing work that we actually enjoy doing. We were talking earlier about home production, hauling water from the river is nobody would call that fun, uh, I don't think. Uh, but uh, but thinking of an of an idea while you're on a run is really exhilarating.
1: <laughs> and it so, is exhilarating, right? But it's not just the running. It's not, and it's not just even the home production. For example, and there's much more chance now to display one's culinary talents and have fun cooking. Yeah. Same thing for work. People have jobs they like, but the same thing is true also for other leisure activities. Think about going to a museum today as compared to when you were a kid. I mean, the museums are just much better. Yeah. No question. All the interactive stuff is just fantastic. So we've seen these improvements in just almost every dimension of human life. Just ask yourself, would you go back to living the way you did or your grandparents did when you were a small child? I mean, there's no way, if nothing else, we have air conditioning now, which I sure didn't have when I was a kid. Makes life much better.
0: So I'm going to let me rephrase your point, make sure I understand it. You're suggesting that Almost every aspect of life in, in, in America, at least over the last hundred years, has improved, which includes the experience we call work, the experience we call leisure. So my grandfather's idea of leisure was listening to Caruso on a beat-up uh, gramophone that wasn't very good. It was very scratchy. I remember listening to it as a child. His next best activity was smoking a pipe and looking off into the distance and his third activity when I was around was either eating ice cream with me or reading me uh, uh, a poem or telling me a story, whereas uh, my parents with their grandchildren have a much wider and more delightful array of stuff to do. Is that, is that a correct way of saying what you're, what you're saying?
1: It's correct. It also ties back to our first point. Namely you Your parents probably have more money than your grandparents did. Sure and I trust, I don't know how many grandchildren you have, but I look at the things I do with my grandchildren. I mean, we take each one on an exotic trip somewhere in the world. My grandparents didn't have much money at all, and they sure never took me to Australia the way I am taking one grandchild this summer. So yes, we can expand our activities variety-wise and quality of the same activity compared to what we used to do in the same amount of time we're having higher quality activities. And
0: it's tempting to say, well, Dan Hammermare, she's got a Income. He's had been a successful academic. But it's also important to say that this is increasingly available to a lot more people. And the example I like to give, uh, I've got an upcoming video on this. uh, You know, a 1973 Honda Civic, which was a a nice car, and it sold for $1,973, which was a great marketing technique in 1973. Uh, If you looked at the inside of that car, which I have, because you can find it online, it's 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 scary looking. It's like a metal box with a few dials. There's <laughs> zero amenities. Forget things like <laughs> anti-lock brakes and airbags and but just the seat itself and the look and feel of it is is just not as
1: nice. My example is child restraints in cars. Now they're in there it looks like a like, like a tank, practically. Oh, yeah. yeah. Our kid, our older son in 73, we had a little strap around him attached to something in the back so he could bounce around in it. God forbid there should have ever been an accident. He'd been smushed, I'm sure. Um,
0: and, of course, I'm sure you experienced this, too. When I was young and we would take a cross-country trip, and, yeah, we weren't going to Australia either. Um, I would be – we would fight over who would get to lay down in the back window well. <laughs> The, the back part of the car. Uh, so there, not, not only were there no seat belts,
1: <laughs> we, no, we were people. People yeah. would lie around. We had the same thing in our 1955 Chevy station wagon. Two of us could lie in the back, and we'd fight over among the three of us who got to do it. I never got to. I was the oldest of three. I've been very deprived. Yeah. Well, it shows. Uh, I want
0: to. <laughs> I want to talk about this other aspect of leisure on the job, which I think is. Uh, it's interesting, and I don't know if you've experienced it. Uh, being the older, fuddy duddy you've confessed to be, I am struck by, at the age of 64, how difficult it is for me to stay focused on a task uh, compared to when I was younger. Now, part of it's just getting older, but part of it is that I've developed some very bad habits of rotating between email, Twitter, the paper I'm writing, the essay I'm writing, the project I'm working on, the book I'm reading – And I don't have uh, the sitzfleisch, the ability to stay in one place as much as I was when I was younger. One of the things that fascinates me about this that's relevant for your book is that I think a lot of people take leisure on the job. That is, they make airline reservations. They do check their sports scores and their teams, what's going on with them. Uh, They watch a funny video. They're constantly – doing multiple things within any one hour. And I just, part of that's a statement about our wealth, uh, part of it's a statement about what the internet's done to our attention span, I think. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Certainly the wealth's a very good explanation. Look, we know that people who are better off do more different things. In any given day, they buy more different things, they do more different things with their time. So it's not not surprising if you're well off and better off than you used to be, in any given hour, you're going to be doing more different things, including cruising the Internet, looking up restaurants maybe listening to a YouTube recording of some operatic aria, et cetera, as well as working. I do the same thing. You think it's, it's partly age. I mean, you yeah. think it's bad, 64. Wait till you're 75 and see what happens, okay? Uh, there's no question about that. But it's also a function of our economic well-being. We can afford to do that. It might cost us a little bit of production, a little bit of salary. But what the heck? We're making so much, so many of us, that why not enjoy ourselves a little bit? And this is one aspect of that enjoyment. I want to shift gears. I want to talk
0: about a a phenomenon that is – I want to move to marriage generally, but I want to start with the phenomenon you discuss in the book that historically husbands are older than their wives uh, in the United States and certainly elsewhere, and that that gap has been shrinking. And that is utterly fascinating. It is a purely emergent phenomenon. There's no – nobody's in charge of this. There's no rule. There are some sort of – there are cultural norms uh, in general that suggest that that men are older than their wives, but of course there are many people who buck that trend. There are many women who marry uh, men who are younger than they are, but in general, on average, husbands are older than wives and but not so much anymore. So talk about why that is, why it started off uh, a larger gap, any gap at all, and why it's shrinking.
1: Uh, first of all, simple fact that the turn of the 20th century, the age difference at first marriage male-female was four years. A few years ago, it was about 2.1. And if you look at couples under age 50, don't take me, the difference is one and a half years. And the same thing has happened in other rich countries. It's much less true in poor countries. The question is why the gap is narrowing? Uh, that's a tough why question. Why was it there in the first place? First place is easy. A, you wanted to have women married early because their fertility, their childbearing years were going to be shorter. They weren't going to live as long. So if you're going to reproduce, you want to have them doing it early. That's one thing. On the men's side, it took a while for guys to demonstrate how much they could earn and make themselves attractive in the labor market. So that's another reason for them to be substantially older than their wives. Today, in the U.S. especially, we have all kinds of sorting. You know pretty well whether somebody's going to do well in life or not. Some guy's going to do well. Also, people mix now to a very large extent at colleges and universities, and they're mixing with people of roughly the same age. Look at me. My wife robbed the cradle. I'm four months younger than she. How do we meet? We met in grad school when she was studying something else, and I was studying economics. And I think that kind of method of meeting, be it in school or on the job, is increasingly important. And it's not surprising because more and more women are working and going to college than in the old days. So for all these reasons, we see this very sharp narrowing of the age difference between men and women at first marriage.
0: But historically, uh, men were the workers and women stayed home. Uh, Women were protected uh, through things like alimony and divorce laws that that protected them from even though they weren't being paid. Literally, they were investing, (laughs) obviously, in the family and so social norms and laws evolved that legislation evolved that that protected women and gave them an incentive to invest in the family even though they were vulnerable economically and as women have more and more become the equal of men in the workforce in terms of both participation and wages and so on you would expect that that phenomenon to be to be less important the part that's interesting to me is that uh i think everyone's aware most people are aware that the marriage rate in the United States has fallen. The part that's interesting to me, and I'm sure you know this, is that it's fallen very little for people with a college education or higher. It's fallen, but not so much. But among people without a college education, and particularly people who don't finish high school, it's dropped off the cliff. It's plummeted, you could argue. I don't have the numbers on the tip of my tongue, but it's quite dramatic. And I've, I've wondered whether how much of that is a change in the ability of of less educated men to find productive work in the United States in in the current economic climate? How much of it is the inability, the ability of women to uh,
1: support themselves through various ways? Have you thought about that at all? A little bit. It's not part of my stuff on time use, but I think both causes you're talking about. Problem of low educated men making a lot of money And demonstrating to a spouse that they can help support them, I think that's part of it. Also, the increased independence of women because of the uh, greater access to jobs and the somewhat equalization of wages also made a difference. I think what also has mattered some is the fact that we talked about before, that is, women can get along in the household spending less time doing home production. That being the case, they don't need guys out there to support them while they're home doing work at home. So that one more reason why there's less need for lower educated, for lower income women to find a spouse. All these things have worked together. How much each contributes, I have no idea. You do some interesting comparisons between the U.S. and Europe.
0: Uh, it's it's well known, at least claimed, as in some data, that U.S. on average, uh, U.S. workers on average work more hours per year. Uh than in Europe, and it's not a small difference. So, people have suggested a variety of reasons for that. We'll come back to those maybe uh, in a minute, but I'd like to hear your
1: take first. Uh, talk about that difference and what do you think is the cause of it? The US is now the champion of total work among rich countries. Uh we work about eight hours more per week than Germans on average, about six hours more than the French. This wasn't true at all 40 years ago. At that point, we were smack dab in the middle. It's not because more of us are working during the year. We're about in the middle of that. Our work week, if we're working, is about the same as other countries. Okay. The big difference is we get very few paid or unpaid compared to other countries, and most important, much shorter vacation time. The Germans will typically get five weeks of paid vacation, other countries six, others four. The Australians get a sabbatical of three months every 10 years. Everybody, not just privileged professors. And Mm -hmm. we get very short vacations. Every one of these countries mandates paid vacations. We don't, and for that reason... Our work years are longer than everybody else. It seems to me it's a political decision. No company can do it themselves. Otherwise, if they did, they'd get creamed by their competitors. We've made a political decision not to do it governmentally. Other countries have chosen to do it through government mandate. So I'm going to
0: disagree a little bit with
1: that and then uh, suggest some, <laughs> some other
0: other arguments that, that have been made there. One of the reasons – first thought is that a lot of people in the United States, at least this is I, – I, it might be true – literally in the data, but it might just be anecdotal, but I, I, I hear of Americans who don't take all of their vacation. Uh, so it's, it, that's not the only reason that that mandated difference. And of course, then they have to ask the question of why those mandates are there for those other countries. Why is their political system uh, done that? The, the answer that I've heard in the past, I associated with Edward Prescott, is that there's higher taxes in Europe, so the return from working is not quite so high, so they don't work as many hours. What do you uh, think look, of
1: that? I think that I've argued with Prescott over this good about 15 years ago in some, in some unusual environment. You know, it's fine to look at the European countries, but Switzerland – doesn't work any near as much as we do. Their tax rates are no higher than ours. Japan now doesn't work as much as we do. They have the same average tax rate as we do. So I think, while it's easy to point to France and Germany as having high tax rates. their are countries with tax rates no higher than ours, where people are now working much, much less. So I don't find Prescott's argument appealing at all. Uh, he would probably disagree, but that's okay. I'm sure he would. Um, do you think,
0: you, do you have any thoughts on why, I mean, one obvious theory for these differences
1: is cultural. Uh, and, and, right? well, sorry for laughing. I used the word cultural in a difference in a paper recently, and I got lambasted. Why? I decided. Uh, it's it was considered derogatory for the particular group that I was talking about. So I now never use the word culture anymore. I'll use that term to sociologists. As an economist, I don't want to use that at all. So it may be cultural, but I can't talk about. it. So I'm going to take a chance.
0: Okay. Okay, and I'm going to suggest. I don't know if it's true, but uh, I'm going to suggest the possibility that America's culture is more. Uh, you did use the word workaholic in your in your book. So Indeed. it's possible that Americans are just more materialistic, more ambitious, more eager to change the world. just different ways you can frame it that are attractive, others less attractive. Uh, but that could, of course, be the difference. And then you'd argue that the the legislative aspect of it is to just make it easier, as you say, for companies to not compete on that basis.
1: Exactly. But if it is cultural, it must be a new cultural thing because 40 years ago – we were no different from other countries. so Excellent point. You have to make the argument that somehow culture changed here or didn't change here, but it changed elsewhere in a way to make this difference suddenly arise. And that's a much tougher argument to make since we like to think culture is much more permanent than 30 or 40-year changes.
0: Yep, I agree, and I, I, that's why I think the there might be something to the tax argument because obviously the size of government in Europe has grown dramatically over the last 40 years. It's grown here too, of course but not quite as much. And then there's a question of how uh, taxes are structured and whether they're done
1: well. And- of course, of course. But the difference in tax rates wasn't that great 30 or 40 years ago. It was about the same, rather, 30 or 40 years ago. I just think some other countries decided that they would be better off having holidays, having paid vacations, and we have not. But we are unique in that regard, and I would say that correlates very well with our very long work years.
0: I want to raise a related question. Uh, not directly related to the book, but drawing on your interests in labor economics and and public policy, uh, I recently had uh, Mariana Mazzucato on the program, and we got into an argument about child labor laws. Hmm. And I suggested that legislation was not the real was not an important reason that children don't work in the United States. That it was a market partly market driven force, and of course, there's all kinds of areas where this could be true. Uh, child labor laws would be one. Mandatory overtime, uh, the minimum wage, uh, OSHA safety regulations on the job. So, for example, the American workplace is dramatically safer than it was 100 years ago in terms of death on the job, accidents on the job, disability on the job. But I would argue that's
1: – I may say, if I'm a hundred yeah. years ago, heck, 40, 50 sure. years ago, the death rate on the job, and it's partly. This is accounting for the decline of construction and manufacturing. Death rates in the jobs in the same industry have fallen over fifty percent in forty or fifty years. It's just unbelievable. One of the great un- un- unknown success stories of our economy. And you know, you you make that was a very subtle point you made very
0: quickly, which is that the nature of work in the United States is safer, meaning there are fewer manufacturing, construction, the most dangerous occupations have fewer people in them proportionally than they did 50 years ago, but even within those occupations, they've gotten less dangerous. And a lot of people would put up a chart that would show the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Mm -hmm. Act and say, look what happened after it passed. And what they often fail to do is look at the trend before it passed. And it's the same trend, almost, it's almost exactly the same. Of course, of course. Suggesting that the legislation it could still have an impact. It could have been the trend would have slowed. Different, you know, might have done some. Doesn't say that the laws are relevant, but it is important to understand that there are often underlying factors that are moving in
1: the same direction. Absolutely, and we as economists have to try to disentangle them. Which, for example, I've done some of my work over the years on minimum wages and overtime. And there's no question, a rich society. Minimum wage is tougher to talk about. But a rich society should be having people doing less overtime. On the other hand, there's some pretty careful experiments, one of which I did twenty years ago involving some California laws, which suggest that in fact these things do matter at the margin. They don't explain everything. Right. Of course not. But they do matter. And the question only is politically, do we want that kind of extra mattering? Do we want to spend time legislating to bring about those extra changes? It's a purely political question. And
0: what comes with those changes, other you know, enforce and monitoring, and it's never quite done exactly the way that the people who thought it was a good idea thought it would actually happen, et cetera, et cetera, right? Of course not. Uh, well, you, we mentioned the minimum wage. It, it, you know, One of the, <laughs> one of the obvious um, uh, points is that when the minimum wage stays unchanged for a long time and gets eaten away a little bit by inflation or just stays unchanged even with inflation, uh, fewer and fewer people fewer and fewer people are earning that amount because of market forces. so it's it's a natural phenomenon to some extent. But of course, if the minimum wage is set high enough, and we recently uh, had a conversation with Jacob Vigdor of University of Washington on this, uh, it can have impacts on employment. It can have impacts on hours. It can have impacts on other margins that I often worry that advocates fail to keep in mind. And I'm curious what your thought is, having lived over roughly the same period I have and seen uh, research that was an absolute consensus that the minimum wage was a destructive thing for low skill workers to a near consensus today that it's really no big deal. And those of us like myself who are still uh, not in favor of it are seen as, as missing un- misunderstanding the current state of research. I'm curious
1: what your take is at where we are on that issue. Oh, dear. The minimum wage wars, as I call them. There's no policy in the United States in the labor area that is so unimportant that has gotten so much research and ink spilled about it. Okay. I am really tired of it. I have a new paper with another guy where we talk about minimum wage and overtime. And the fact is, and this is interesting, your initial point wasn't quite right. In about half the state's Uh, minimum wages at at the state level, which apply everywhere, are much higher than the federal seven and a quarter. Absolutely. And and moreover, in the last few years, looking across states, those higher straight minimums have exactly mirrored the rise in average wages in those states. So we have been raising the minimum wage for the majority of workers in this country. We just don't talk about it very much. In terms of the, the consensus on this, my view has always been – as a wonderful study 40 years ago by the guy who's my co-author on this paper – that, you know, it has some small effects. The effects are bigger on low-skilled people. They're bigger on teenagers. Yep. It's also the case that those who are affected by the minimum wage who were so-called trying to help – are people who are probably not the primary earner in the family, so when you say all oh, these primary earners are starving at the minimum wage that 's a very rare phenomenon, so like in most things in this, I am a complete middle of the roader The problem with that is you get hit by cars coming in both directions as I have been repeatedly yeah it's um, you know i the part that I always worry about that um,
0: it 's extremely uh, unpopular view among uh a disliked view by people who are advocates for the minimum wage, but my argument is that it effectively creates a reserve army of the unemployed. It, it prices out a lot of people from the labor market whose skills aren't worth the minimum wage if it's set high enough. Uh, and then- advice,
1: yes, but I disagree with you, given well, look- how long it's set, if I may just, I mean, it's finished. I just don't think it matters very much. My view is this is a really unimportant issue. The main thing is a way in which political parties get money from advocates for their side. If I ran the zoo, if I may quote Dr. Seuss, if I ran the zoo, I would simply say, look, pick a level for it. Let it go up with inflation every year and stop worrying about it. It's just not important enough to worry about. Well, I agree it's a lot of political theater around it. Indeed. But in, in Seattle, uh, if you're a
0: large employer, I think you need to have 500 employees nationally, I think, not just in this, the the local uh, market or in the local uh, particular location. So if you're a large employer uh It's $16 an hour. Now, there's still a lot of people in Seattle who make many, many, many dollars above that. But for people who have low skills, um, I think it's a pretty brutal thing. What I was going to suggest, and then you can react to it, is that because it's attractive, it pulls people into the labor market. It allows employers to not provide – we focus on the wrong things. We focus – not the wrong things, but only a narrow set of things. Whether people are working and how many hours they work, say that would be a big expansion. But we also should worry about training on the job, the opportunity to, to learn from other people, mentoring. And as a result, you don't have to be very nice as an employer because there's a lot of people willing to work at $16 an hour who are, who are struggling to find those kind of jobs because they're expensive to the employer. And that just seems to me to be a terrible thing to do to low-skilled workers in the name of helping them.
1: I think it's a more subtle thing even than you're saying. There are only really two issues. One – you're focusing, and the law is focused on wages. I know darn well there's studies of this. When the minimum wage goes up, you cut back other compensation, all kinds of fringe benefits. No question on that. On the training business, that's a little bit tougher. I mean, if I've had to pay somebody a bit more, I have incentives to train her or him a bit more. And in fact, the evidence on the training suggests that, in fact, that may go up with a higher minimum wage. But I think the bigger point is that other methods of compensation, namely non-monetary or monetary non-wage compensation, there's no question that gets cut when minimum wages are increased, and You've got to pay some people more than you had to before. You might used to have provided uniforms, now that workers have to buy their own.
0: There's a whole bunch of dimensions to this, of course, that that are often, I think, uh, under underappreciated. All those things. Now, your book is written for a non-economist, and one of the sub-themes that runs through the book, which I think is extremely important, and I've certainly in my life, in talking to students, emphasized it, that our time is, in many ways, our most precious gift, our most precious resource. It is... Um, it's really hard to expand it. You might think by jogging you're gonna make it uh maybe a little longer at the end. But in general we're we're stuck with what we have and we don't spend as much time as we might uh thinking about its preciousness. So talk a little bit about that and and how that motivated you in writing the book.
1: Well, in fact, as a sort of an interesting aside, I want to subtitle the book, Your Most Precious Resource. The editor said, A, it sounds like an advice book. B, using the word precious makes it sound like something out of Lord of the Rings. So the subtitle became the most valuable resource, which I view is much less interesting. But, you know, I do what the editors tell me to do. Uh, I think the issue is people just don't think about time very much. I'm not asking that people worry about it, but either they stew about time how rushed they are and don't think about ways to change that feeling of rushedness, or they spend time on things that really, if they thought for a minute, they would say, hey, this is not the greatest thing to do with my time. There are ways, other than declaring poverty and becoming a monk, of having more time even with the same income. Uh, One could, for example, force oneself to spend time on things. For example, I walk to work in New York. I walk three miles from my flat up to uh, Barnard College. It's a way of forcing myself to relax a little bit. All kinds of things like that we could do, which I think would make our lives better. It's not an advice book, but there's, you know, once you start thinking about time, you realize there are things that we all do because we haven't thought about them that we could improve our lives and perhaps become somewhat less of a workaholic than we currently are.
0: Yeah, I'm always struck by how when you explain to people that you can pay for things, services and, and parts of your daily life, And free up time to do other things because of invoking, say, a fancy economic piece of jargon, but in this case isn't much more than common sense, say invoking comparative advantage. Uh, People are like – they're like, whoa, I never thought of that. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's good. If that's helpful to you, I'm really happy.
1: That's what we say. But on the other hand, in terms of our 24 hours a day… There's really not that much we could contract out. Across the valley from where I lived here until a few years ago was the richest man in Texas, Michael Dell, whose computers you may have heard of. Okay? Now, I think about him. How much time can he save by paying for things? I mean, leisure time? No, no. Uh, all his home production, maybe, but some of his home production involves spending time with kids, which is enjoyment. My guess is at most, if you could, the richest person in the world could at most contract out three or four hours a day. And that still leaves huge amounts of money and very, very little extra time to spend it in. So we're stuck. There's yeah, I, no question about it. So I shovel my own driveway. Uh, it's very short, and it only snows a <laughs> few
0: times a year here. But I pay somebody to cut my lawn. Um, and but, for example, I'm always my time is quote, quote, very valuable. And yet I take my own garbage out every every week. I don't pay someone for that 90 seconds or three or four minutes. And that's a simple answer in economics is transaction costs uh, that to do that contracting and time it would just be not worth it. So I just do it myself. And I'm sure Michael Dell has some things like that in his life where he <laughs> he probably he might clear his own table. Uh, he may be not. He may have a servant who does that full-time. There are a lot of little things that rich people can do to make their lives a little more convenient and free up sometime. But as you point out, they are they are limited. And so much of them we enjoy. I love chopping wood when a tree fell in our yard. Uh, raking leaves, not so much. But now that the kids are out of the house, I don't have to set a lesson. So I do pay for that. <laughs> or I just don't rake them yeah. at all. It's really liberating. <laughs>
1: No, of course, all these things are exactly what we do. In my case, I do none of this home production. We moved into a large apartment downtown Yeah, in Austin, even better. That's <laughs> even better. But still, how much time did it save me? It saved me very, very little. It just doesn't make much difference. Eight hours of sleep a night, I should be so lucky. <laughs> uh, my work, on average, about five hours a day. Uh, reading, I can't pay somebody to read for me or sleep for me. Just You're stuck. So there's very little hope of time saving unless you make a conscious effort to do things a little bit differently and spend a bit more time at them. In my case, walking the three miles to to Barnard College rather than taking the subway for 25 minutes.
0: I want to close with a question about the state of economics. Um, I was a student in Gary Becker, and Gary Becker uh, it was 1965, you might remember the date better than I do, but I think nineteen sixty five wrote a paper that was got a lot of acclaim <laughs> about a different way of looking at at how we get our satisfactions in life. And in particular, Becker pointed out, which is undeniably true, that we combine time with purchases. We don't get direct utility, direct pleasure from a steak. We have to take the steak, combine time, that is to cook it, and we produce the ultimate good we're really consuming is a pleasant dinner with our with our wife or a pleasant <clears throat> meal with a, with a glass of wine. And the, our ultimate goals are not the consumption of things. It's the creation of experiences. And, you know, your example of walking to work is a perfect example of that. You're, you're creating uh, serenity or a little bit of health or a whole bunch of things, contemplation. And, and yet what I find fascinating, I think everyone understands that, that it's true, and it. I would suggest – and Calvin Lancaster had a similar approach at the time, uh similar kind of uh, – the idea that that home is is like a little factory. And it, it might be useful, not necessarily as the husband or the wife, but as economists who look at these experiences to think about them as not just goods but goods and time. And I'm struck by how little impact that had on our profession, like none, uh, zero. <laughs> On the teaching of economics or how people conceive of the economic enterprise, Uh, do, do you think I have that right?
1: I think you have pretty much right. I teach a course for grad students at various locations around the world on time. And I'm shocked at how few students or even my younger colleagues have read the 65 Becker paper, which, as you can tell, motivated much of this book and has motivated much of my research for the last, good grief, 30 years. Uh, I'm shocked. I don't know why people don't. I think the real reason, maybe I'm optimistic, is that until recently, we economists like to test theories and fit models. And until recently, there really has not been enough data to allow serious thinking and testing of that model. We know it makes sense, but the specific implications of it in a testable way have not been available. I think now with these data that I've used, which are becoming more and more widely used, we're starting to see papers, including a recent one of my own, where in fact we do test things directly, rather subtle predictions. And I think you're going to see much more of this. So I'm optimistic that, in fact, this idea, which I think is fundamental to our lives in both rich and poor countries, is going to wind up being more and more important in our benighted profession.
0: My guest today has been Daniel Hammermesh. His book is Spending Time. Uh, it should have been called Your Most Precious Resource, but it's okay. <laughs> it's called Your Most Valuable Resource. Is that the stuff?
1: The, the Most Valuable most Resource. resource. Dan, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks for having me on. Take care.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.